0: Welcome, Rockbridge. My name is Matt, one of the pastors on our team, and I just want to welcome you at all six of our physical locations, Cleveland, Hickson, Ringgold, Dalton, Chatsworth, Calhoun, and also welcome you if you are tuning in online via Facebook, YouTube, or our Rockbridge online platform. We are so glad that you've joined us, and here's what I want you to know. There's two things you need to believe here today as you're watching, listening, and engaging with this. Uh, Number one, if God's going to do anything in your life, he's going to do it through his word and how He communicates with us through His Word. And so you're here to listen and to hear His Word, so you're not here by accident, which means, number two, God has something for you. There's a reason you're here. And so I just want to pray for all of us that we not miss God today. Join with me. God, thank you for every person here, every person engaged, every person tuning in. God, help us to fight distraction. Help us to fight deception. Because we know, God, there's an enemy that doesn't want us to hear from you right now. And so, God, in the strong name of Jesus, we believe nobody is here by accident. In the strong name of Jesus, God, we ask you to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, what you want us to hear, what you want us to behold, to see today, this weekend, at Rockbridge Community Church. Thank you, Jesus, for everybody here today. In your name we pray amen and amen. So I, I want to begin uh, part four of this series where we're journeying with the seven churches of Revelation. Revelation is the last book of the Bible, and there's, it's a letter written to seven historical churches in, that live or existed in what we would call modern-day Turkey. And this is the letter to the church at Thyatira. But I want to begin by asking us all a question that we can all relate to. And the question is this, how hard is it for you To stop doing something that you actually enjoy doing. How hard is it for you to stop doing something you enjoy doing? And that thing you enjoy doing could be, let's be honest, it could be a bad habit. Something that you might call, uh, you know, a, a, a sin or a, a negative hang-up or habit or something that's kind of hurtful, but you enjoy doing it. So to be honest with yourself. Or this could just be something innocent or normal or just, hey, I enjoy fishing, I enjoy hunting, I enjoy this, I enjoy that. Just, but how hard is it for you to stop doing or say no to something you enjoy doing, and, and here's the deal: we are so trained that we, are, and we are so indoctrinated that if it feels right, if it's something we want, then we have every right to have it, or every right to pursue it, or every right to do it. So when I ask that question, a lot of us are like, "Well, that's just sort of unnatural." And it just sort of goes against the grain of my gut or goes against the grain of my taste buds or goes against the grain of my biology or goes against the grain of just what it means to be a human being. Let's just admit it, we're all driven by desire. We're all driven by a pursuit of we want to have joy, we want to have happiness, and so if I enjoy something, it brings me joy, then it's really hard for me to stop doing it. Now, for some of you, me even asking that question brings up a bad taste or a negative perception about Christianity, because you've probably heard, or you probably believe, or you've probably thought, hey, at some point, being a Christian is going to be against my joy or against my happiness, or at some point what if God asked me to go somewhere I don't want to go or do something I don't want to do so that causes you to sort of instinctively and naturally just kind of keep God at a distance you may call yourself a Christian or yet I'm a believer but maybe you're not fully following God because you're you're really afraid that he might ask you to stop doing something you enjoy doing So there's a tension there. Let's just acknowledge that. There's a tension that God may want to go against your natural. But here's what we need to see: no matter where you are in your spiritual journey. Hey, I'm checking out Christianity, Matt, and you're giving me a reason to quit checking it out. Hang on with me. Or, hey, I'm I'm a church person, I'm a Christ follower, I'm a believer. Uh, but no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, if we don't know how to resolve and deal with and fight the tension, the battle that's implied by this question, it will impair your journey with God. You'll miss something of God. In, in fact, I, I'll, even say, I'll even say it this way, okay? God's plan, God's purpose for your life hinges upon how we can wrestle with this question and deal with this question. Because I'll say this, every major move of God in my life from the time I was eight years old and made the decision to follow Jesus to now I'm 45, every move of God in my life required me to wrestle with that question whether it's a fi- i've had a historic fight against pornography, let's be honest, there's parts of that that you enjoy doing. Well, how hard is it for you to stop doing something you enjoy doing? When God called us to start this church, I had to stop doing something I enjoyed doing. I had to say no to something that I enjoyed having. Other sinful patterns in my life Sin. Let's just be honest. We're going to be real, right? There's parts of sin that feels good. Sometimes it feels good to tell people how you feel and be be angry. Sometimes it feels good to have you know pursue money instead of God. I mean, all those kind of things, right? Sometimes it just feels good. But if God is going to take you somewhere, if we are going to be the church God wants us to be, if you're going to have God's best, if you're going to fulfill God's purpose, if you're going to walk faithfully with God, if you're going to move forward with God, this is going to have to be something you know how to deal with or know how to answer biblically scripturally in fact here's what's amazing we are so accustomed to speakers and and entertainers telling us what we want to hear and making us feel good and and all those kind of things but you know when Jesus called people to follow him he often would just bring this up immediately I mean, he called two tax collectors to follow him, Zacchaeus and Matthew. Tax collectors robbed people uh, and skimmed money off the top, and they got rich. And he calls Matthew away from that, and Matthew leaves to follow Jesus. He calls Zacchaeus away from that, and Zacchaeus says, hey, if I've extorted money from anybody, I'm going to give them back four times as much. Now, for a rich person that enjoys making money, they're like, hey, do you want to follow Jesus or you want to keep making money? you got to deal with that. The adulterous woman, he catches a woman caught in adultery. Well, she's doing that because there's part of that that's scratching an itch or that she enjoys. And he says to her, I I don't condemn you, but you got to go and sin no more. Jesus met a group of fishermen. That's all they knew. That was their deal. That was their trade. That was their platform. That was their career. That was their calling, so to speak. He says, hey, come follow me. And they dropped their nets and followed him. They enjoyed fishing, but they chose to follow Jesus. So even early in Christianity, Jesus says, Hey, we're going to have to deal with you stopping something you enjoy doing. How do we wrestle with that? Well, the fourth church in the book of Revelation is the church at Thyatira. And we'll meet them there, and we'll go forward and wrestle through This tension. Here we go. Let's pick it up. We read in uh, Revelation chapter 2. We'll start reading here in verse 18. Write to the angel of the church at Thyatira. Thus says the Son of God, all these seven letters always begin with a vision and a view of God, a view of Jesus, given as a complete sevenfold picture of Jesus. And, and this is so important because each that the problem or the challenge of each church is sort of is, is addressed by how Jesus is described. So, so there's an implication there that you you know, a lot of us we say, well, I have a marriage problem or I have a, this problem or I have that problem. I want you to tell everybody that's listen, your ultimate problem is a view of God problem that all that problems are really begin with your view of God in fact one great pastor theologian said this the most important thing about any of us is what we think about when we think about God Because that's going to tell us how we live our lives, how we think of ourselves. And so this view of God that John presents, Jesus presents to John in Revelation, is quite significant. So what does God look like to the church at Thyatira? And for many of us, this is going to be the scary God. So let's hold on and we'll we'll see what happens. Thus says the Son of God, that's Jesus, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. So this is the image, fire, eyes that penetrate, eyes that see bronze, which is hearkening back to Old Testament and the temple. Here's what this is. Jesus is able to, is, is, can come in judgment. Jesus can see sin and see difficulties and penetrate that. And bronze would be, imply that he has authority, capacity uh, to deal with a, a sin issue or with a sin problem. So this is God coming as a kind of a judge and as an authority who's asking us to stop stop doing something or start doing something who wants us to deal with sin. So this is the image of God that a lot of people have. It's kind of the fear of God of the same kind of emotion you feel within your rearview mirror. You see blue lights. That God is going to speak to me and deal with something or call me to, to something, and, and he's going to judge or he's going to call that out. So, so that's kind of the view of God that we have. And, and, and some of you, that, that's like scary. Now just hold on. But for some of us, that's a challenge. But that's how he's presented here. But here's what we have to understand because we need to be emphatically clear. Jesus did come to deal decisively with sin. Not sparingly, not infrequently, but decisively with sin. That's not like a popular message. Because most of us, here's what we want to do with sin. Excuse it, ignore it, cover it up, or remake God in our image so that what we're doing is not technically a sin. Jesus came to deal decisively with sin. Look at what 1 Peter says. First Peter says it this way. He personally carried our sins in his body so that we can go to heaven when we die. That's not what it says. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be forgiven of our sins. That's not what it says. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin that we would stop sinning, that we would stop doing things that offend or grieve God and live for what is right. By his wounds on the cross, we are healed and we are transformed. So Jesus came to deal decisively with sin. It's fundamental. It's foundational. It's not always popular. It doesn't always make us feel good, but it's part of the package and part of the plan, and there's a good reason for it. So let's hold on and keep reading as we we'll go into the next couple of verses. Verse 19, here's what he says He says, I know your works. So Jesus knows that's his fiery eyes that can see into my soul and your soul, that can see what you did last night, that can see how you handled that situation at work, that can see how you really treat your. Or really treat your kids, or really treat your neighbor that can see what you really believe about people who have a different skin color than you. That's those fiery eyes. I know your works. And he says, Look, I know about your love, I know about your faithfulness. Your service, your endurance, I know your last works are greater than the first. Now, because all of us are like scorecard people and scorekeeping people, and we went to school, and a 90 was good, and a 70 was bad, right? We've all done that, and and check, check, check. It's like, wow, this church is on time, is killing it. This church is doing great. This church is making progress, This church is moving forward. And so we're like, okay, what's the big deal with the church? But I have this against you. And we don't want to hear this, right? We don't want to hear what God has against us. We don't want to hear what's lacking in us. We don't want to hear that. But Jesus gives that. And there's a reason, which we'll see in a second. He says, you tolerate the woman Jezebel. This is an Old Testament reference to a, to a pagan idolater who provoked judgment, who led the people of Israel astray, uh, and, and she faced just horrible death and judgment. So all, any Jew in the first century would be like, wow, he just called us a Je- Jezebel. He just said we tolerate Jezebel, and that would, they would know immediately that that's not a good thing. ...who calls herself a prophetess, a speaker of truth, and teaches and deceives my servants... ...so the people of God are being deceived, to commit sexual immorality... And to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And it's interesting that in in this description of what he has against them, he includes something that's kind of obvious. I mean, we can find verses about sexual purity in scripture, but when it says meat sacrificed to idols, there's a little tension there because in 2 Corinthians, Paul has taught there's technically nothing wrong with eating meat sacrificed to idols. So he gives us something that's obviously wrong and something where we might might be tempted to say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. Why is that being held against us? And and the reason that's in there will become clear as we navigate through this. But here's what we need to understand. God is not satisfied with merely us making progress. He wants perfection. He wants completeness. But he is patient. Thank goodness for that. Thank goodness for that. And so God is not satisfied with us saying, hey, here's where I was six months ago. Here's where I am today. God is, is after completeness, after fullness, after maturity. He's after perfection. Now, now, that's a scary word. I know that's a scary word, especially if you grew up kind of in the Bible belt and you grew up in church because it's like, well, you've, heard, you've used this as an excuse, haven't you? I have. Nobody's perfect and God understands. That's not in the Bible. That might be in your heart to make you feel better when you read the Bible, but it ain't in the Bible. Because when I read that passage, I read I'm supposed to be 100% dead to sin. That I don't negotiate with it, I don't ignore it, I don't deceive myself about it. That I am supposed to be dead to sin. That's one of the reasons Jesus died in my place and Jesus died for me. And so we're dealing with, you know, that three-letter word sin, and God is saying, hey, I'm not satisfied with you being a little better than you used to be. I'm not satisfied with you, you know, kind of making a little bit of progress. The goal is perfection, but God's like, hey, I'm working on you always, and I'm patient. So there's the grace of God's long-suffering or the grace of God's patience is there. Now, when we talk about perfection, what do we mean? What do we mean? The clearest way for us to explain that is to go to Philippians chapter 3 where Paul talks about this concept of perfection. Here's what he says. He goes, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection. Now what he's talking about there with perfection is he's talking about completeness in his relationship with God. It it would be like two people who get married and, and you know, they, they grow in intimacy, they grow in oneness for about a year, and then they stop. And the rest of their life together, they're just they're where they were at year one. And that's not the view of God that God has for us. God wants us to have this incredible personal intimacy and relationship. And so this concept of perfection is the progress of you and I becoming one with God. Now let's just stop and have a moment of worship in our souls for just a minute. The God of the universe, the great I am, the King of kings, the Lord of lords wants to be one with you. And he's not satisfied until he has all of you. And you won't be fully satisfied until you have all of him either. There's a hole in your heart, a hole in your life, a void in your heart, a vacuum in your life that only God can fill. And he's not satisfied with you having just a little bit of him or you even having 95% of him. He's after perfection, and that's what motivates Paul to deal with the imperfections in his life is because he knows as he deals with imperfections in his life, he receives and enjoys, gets more of God. So he says, I press on to possess the perfection for which Christ first possessed me. Let me translate that. Jesus did not just die on a cross and bleed in your place so you could be forgiven of sins and go to a better place when you die physically. Jesus died on a cross. Jesus died in your place. Jesus bled for us, was whipped for us so that we could actually experience union, oneness, complete perfection of intimacy with him, a holy pure, all-satisfying, all-knowing God. That's full biblical Christianity right there. It affects everything. Deals with everything. So we have to go now and say, there's no such thing as an insignificant sin. There's nothing in our lives where we can say, well, nobody's perfect, God understands. There's nothing in our lives that we can't just say, well, I, I don't think that's that big of a deal because if it is to God, it's got to it gotta be to us. And, and the best thing I can use to explain this is, is this. When Beth, my wife, when she had leukemia, so her bone marrow is producing bad blood, so bad cells, bad blood, right? So the doctors come in and their first goal is they kill all of her bone marrow because it's corrupt and it produces stuff that kills people right? And then they inject her with a donor's bone marrow or stem cells that are, that match hers and that come in and fill her bone marrow. And she begins to produce blood and better healed blood or good blood. And they have this measurement, like what percentage of best blood is donor blood? And they don't want it to be 99% because that would mean there's 1% Producing bad blood and 99% produce it. They want 100% donor. That's the standard. Anything less can kill her. God wants you to have 100% of Jesus Christ. If you stop at 99%, that 1% could rob you. Destroy you. Cause you to miss God's best. Your ability and my ability to see that and embrace that call to 100% Jesus... determines whether you follow God fully or not. So so see it in this context. Sin is not so much, I I messed up in my performance. Sin is not so much, hey, I got to do better next time. Sin is primarily a relational problem between you and God. Between you and God. And, and, and it's seeing the value of having 100% Jesus. It's okay to say, like, Paul, I, I'm not there yet. Matthew, I'm not here yet either. Perfection, we're not gonna be there till at the end when he comes back, but we're moving forward to perfection because we don't want 99%. We don't want 99.9%. We want 100% oneness with Christ. That's his goal. That's why he saved us. That's why he called us. That's why he died in our place. That's the best he can give for us. So sin is primarily relational. So here's what we have to begin to see. If this, whatever your this is, right, if it offends or grieves God, this is a sin. This is, this is a problem that has to be addressed. And you may say, well, I don't see anything wrong with it. If God is offended as a holy, pure God, and he's offended by it, there's something wrong with it. We don't get to rewrite the rules. We don't get to reimagine God in our image so that what we enjoy that God says is offensive to him, we don't get to remake God in our image and say, oh, that's not really a sin, or that's no big deal, or there's nothing really wrong with it, or nobody really got hurt. We just don't get that option. It's like this. If you love peanut butter, and you have a child that's born to you, and you love that kid, but they have a peanut allergy, I promise you, as a loving parent, what are you going to do? You're going to get rid of the peanut butter. Well, there's nothing really wrong with it. Yes, there is, because it hurts the one you love. So if this offends or grieves God, this is a sin. If this, whatever this issue is, hinders first love for Jesus, this is a sin. If something we're doing impedes upon our relationship with God, we have to call it as a sin. If TV, nothing wrong with it, unless it hinders my first love for Jesus. Hey, I want to buy this kind of car. Is there anything wrong with it? No, unless it hinders first love for Jesus. What about Facebook? Nothing wrong with it, unless it hinders first love for Jesus. That puts a lot more of your life on the table, doesn't it? A lot more than we're comfortable with. But we have to press through that if we're going to get to 100% Jesus. As a church, as a we people, and as a me, my personal relationship with God. Now, in the midst of God calling out this church at Thyatira for their sin, He always gives invitation. He always gives opportunity. He always gives grace. That's who He is. If God wants a relationship with sinful people, He's going to have to give grace. Because we, we, on our own, perfection is not an option, right? So here's what He does in verse 21 here's the invitation. He goes, I gave her time to repent. That's God's patience. That's God's patience. Do you know the only reason that we have in Scripture for Jesus delaying his coming back is so that more people have more time to repent? Now, now here's my fear as a pastor, that we as a people of God don't even know anymore what it means to repent. So we'll unpack that in a second. But look at the key thing that is discovered about this church at Thyatira. She does not want to. Remember I asked you, how hard is it for you to stop doing something you enjoy or you want to do? She does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. You can, you can take that out. You can fill it in with anything. That might be impeding a relation, 100% relationship with Christ. So she does not want to repent of sexual immorality. So, so there's there's some tensions here. The first one is this, not the invitation is this: God is always encouraging and inviting repentance. He's always calling us to himself in a relationship. But if I am going to be in a relationship with a holy God, I have to change. Because God does not have to change. He's not defective in any capacity, in any way. He's perfect. He's beautiful. He's glorious. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's loving. So I have to change. So let's understand what is repentance. I will say this, and I've said this in blogs during this season. I've texted it. I've emailed it. I've prayed it over our people. I've prayed it over my own soul. Your relationship with Jesus Christ, no matter where you are in that journey, will stop the moment you give up or do not embrace repentance. And yet, do we know how to repent? For, for a lot of us, repentance is, oh, I know I'm a sinner. Oh, I, I ask God to forgive me. I confess. I acknowledge. For a lot of us, repentance is we, maybe we, we, don't, we don't repent. We hide. We cover. We excuse but here's what repentance is. I'll give you two definitions. First one is from a guy named J.I. Packer. He says this, Repentance means turning from as much of you, as you know of your sin, much as you know of your sin, to give as much as you know of yourself, number two, to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, knowledge of sin, knowledge of self, knowledge of God, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. So you never get to graduate from repentance because God's going to show you more about yourself. God's going to show you more about himself. And as you get closer to a holy God, our sinfulness will stand out more. In fact, I tell people this. They say, hey, how am I doing? With, am, I, am I growing in my relationship with God? Here's the Here's the news. If you're growing in your relationship with God, you're also growing in your recognition of how sinful you are, how much you need His grace, and how you need to be a repentant person daily. Just a fact. But as you repent, you get more of God. You get closer to 100%. Union, intimacy, fullness of God. Let me give you my definition that I've kind of hodgepodge together. Repentance means experiencing a change of mind brought about by seeing God as more valuable than or better than sin or better than anything else. So I've got to to stop drinking too much to stop expressing anger in unrighteous ways, to stop pornography, to die to pride, to die to the love of money, etc., etc., to die to slander, to die to gossiping, to die to anything, I have got to have a change of mind brought about by seeing God as better than the sin that I enjoy committing or the thing in my life that keeps me from 100% with God. If you became a Christ follower, if you are going to become a Christ follower today or at any time, you will have to see Jesus as more valuable having the steering wheel of your life than you having the steering wheel of your life. In fact, the very first what we might call revival described in Acts 2, look at what happens. Look at how it broke out. Let everyone know for certain that God has made this Jesus, here's who Jesus is, whom you killed, you crucified. This is the sermon. Again, it's not a feel-good sermon, right? You just killed God. That's the message. It's true. I've killed God. I sinned, and he had to die in my place. We've all killed God. So God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be. Here's who He is. He's Lord and He's Savior. He's Lord and He's Messiah, and Peter's words pierced their hearts, cut their heart. It wasn't. It wasn't anymore just information. It wasn't like oh. It wasn't facts. It was like. Whoa, it was a weight. It cut their hearts. And they said to him, brothers, what should we do? They saw Jesus. They saw what they did to Jesus. And it caused them to open their hearts, to open their eyes and say, we've got to do something in response to this God that we just crucified. And Peter replied, he says, each one of you must Repent of your sins, so now you see Jesus as more valuable, more precious than your sins, and turn to God, turn from sin, turn to God, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, you're going to receive God. Later on, Paul says, your goal is to be full of 100% Holy Spirit, 100% God. So look... Repent, turn, obey through baptism, receive God, and move toward perfection, which is not 99% of God, it's 100% of God. Beautiful. Amazing. So back to Thyatira. He starts talking about this unrepentant church, unrepentant people. Here's what he says. He goes, look, I will throw her into a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her into great affliction, consequence for failure to repent, unless they repent of her works, I'll strike her children dead. Meaning the people who follow this teaching, the people who follow this logic, the people who follow this, uh, this mindset that's antithetical, that's opposite of God, spiritually they're going to die. And then he says, When this happens, all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts. I am the one calling you to repentance. I am the one who wants 100%, not 99%. And I will give each of you according to your works. So, as you and I are are, are wrestling with 100% and wrestling with what it is in our lives that might impede us from first love, impede us with God, we ask these questions Who is this against? What I am holding on to, what I will not let go of, the sin in my life, I have to see it as against God. Then I ask this question, where does this lead? He's just told us that sin always leads to some type of death and destruction and disappointment. Sin always over-promises and underdelivers. He's just told us that. But the beautiful thing... And this is where most Christians and most non-Christians miss it and miss God. Is what Jesus is going to do in the rest of this passage, which is so crucial. Is I have to have a yes greater than the no. I have to have a yes greater than the no. Too many of us, too many of you might perhaps... This is your view of Christianity or this is your view of you don't want to be too radical because if you're too radical, you got to say some no's. I can't stop this. I can't do There's some no's, right? And, and so a lot of times we start at the no. Have you ever tried a diet and the first part of the diet is they tell you all the stuff you can't eat? You're destined for failure right there. What do you need first? You need a vision, right? hey, if you go through with this diet, you can fit in your swimsuit in six months. If you go through with this diet, you have more energy, you'll feel better, your blood pressure will go down, whatever. You might fit in your wedding dress or your tuxedo. I mean, whatever, right? But if we start with no, 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 we're suddenly overwhelmed. We have to have a greater yes. We have to have a greater yes, right? And, and so for, for some of us, you have friends who are not Christians, And you're like, how do I reach them for Christ? And you just want to talk about all the stuff they got to stop doing and all the no's. What you want to give them is the yes of Christianity. It's the yes that gives us the capacity to say no to sin. It's the yes, the greater yes, that gives us the capacity to say, God, if I need to stop doing this thing that I enjoy, I will because of the yes. And God gives us the yes. He gives us an eternally glorious vision. See, whatever it is that you might hold on to, that we might call a sin or we might call an impediment or an obstacle to you going to 100% with Jesus and you enjoy it and you might say, well, there's nothing really wrong with it, but it's an impediment. But Here's the problem with that. That is a temporary vision that is ultimately frustrating and futile. Jesus's vision, God's vision is eternally glorious and it's, it, it's sufficient, it's captivating, it grabs us. So look at what he says. He goes, okay, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, so you haven't moved over into the camp uh, of Jezebel, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I am not putting any other burden on you other than to hold what you have until I come. Stay in relationship. Keep saying yes to me. Keep moving toward 100%, toward perfection. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. There'll be responsibility in the new kingdom and the new earth. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He's quoting from Psalm chapter 2. He'll shatter them like pottery. That's authority. Just as I have received this from my father, and he goes, I will also give him the morning star, that's quoted in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. The morning star is full Jesus. morning star is fullness of God. So, so look what he says. Here's the vision God gives. And when this vision grabs your heart, you can't, I can't stay the same. What, you, you go find anybody... Who's overcome an obstacle? You go find anybody like in the field of business or athletics who's achieved anything, and, and you'll say, Why did you say no? Why did you say yes to early morning workouts? Why did you say no to this? How did you? And they'll tell you they had a vision. Christianity starts the same way it's a glorious, captivating vision that starts with our recognition of His love and glory in the gospel that Jesus died for us, Jesus died instead of us. Jesus will give us his righteousness and take our sinfulness. He will take out the bad bone marrow that produces the bad blood, and he will inject us with his very life, his very righteousness, his very perfection. But his goal is not to have 75%, 100%. And when we see his love in the gospel, it it (gasps) should... I, I need that, I want that, I, I have to have that. He also says, you have a role, I have a role in his kingdom. That there's an eternal future where you and I will have real responsibility that brings eternal satisfaction. All of us know the curse of work, right? All of us know the futility and the frustration of work, but yet we need to work and we're made to work and we're made to have, be fulfilled in our work. And God says, hey, I'm going to give you authority forever that will always bless you and never frustrate you or you're getting ready for that. And then he gives us this final vision. The greatest thing is, hey, the great reward of Christianity is God himself. I will give you the Holy Spirit. I will give you the bright morning star. And when all of that is seen clearly and heard emphatically in our heart of hearts and into our head, then you know what? Then we begin to say yes to Jesus, and we now have the capacity to say no to lesser things. No to lesser things. So here's my question as we close. Wherever you are, on the zero to 100% of Jesus scale, it's okay. God's got you here for a reason. But he's not satisfied with where you are. He loves you too much to leave you as you are. What, needs to, what do you need to say no to so you can have more of him? What do you need to let go of so you can move closer to this vision? So you can move closer to having more of Christ. Our future faithfulness as a church hinges upon all of us pursuing that yes. And moving toward 100%. Your future walk with Christ from this day forward hinges upon will you say yes to Him even if you have to say no to something that you kind of like or you kind of enjoy. And my experience is this, and I think the Word of God testifies to this, if we're going to keep moving and progressing toward the perfection of 100% Christ, we will have to keep repenting and we will keep and we will have to start saying no. No. No in order to have more of the morning star. Let us pray together. King Jesus, I ask you God just to be sovereign in our hearts right now and We just create a little space in our minds to hear from you, to see you, and to thank you. So God, over our church, I just pray that there is a true spirit of repentance where we see you as more precious, beautiful, valuable than any sin that you are pointing out right now. Then anything, God, that we're saying, God, well, there's really technically nothing wrong with it, but you're saying, yeah, there is, because it's keeping me from getting you closer to 100%. So whatever those are, Holy Spirit, you search our hearts and our minds, your fiery eyes look into our souls and our thoughts and our affections. Give us that great vision of you, Jesus. Find us willing to say no so we can have you as our yes. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.